All right, it looks like uh, I've been muted the whole time, so I'll repeat all that. Welcome, everyone. You're listening to United Public Radio. Intro music is Mark of the Doomslayer by Carl Casey at Whiteback Audio, White Bat Audio. And uh, the song before that was by Tool. Um, it is not called Learn to Swim, but that is the message, Learn to Swim. My upcoming guest is someone who I consider a dear friend. He's an extremely impressive individual, and I'm just going to give you a quick rundown of what his background is. So Dr. David Morehouse is an internationally best-selling author, speaker, and educator. He served as a Special Operations Infantry Officer in the United States Army, commanding the Army's only separate airborne rifle company, an airborne ranger company, and an interim airborne infantry battalion. General officers and commanders at brigade and battalion level identified him as a superior leader and consummate trainer of the soldiers serving with him in his units. During his military career, he served in three top-secret special access programs, the Intelligence Support Activity, ISA, codenamed Royal Cape, a.k.a. The Activity, the CIA-DIA Remote Viewing Unit, codenamed Sunstreak, a.k.a. Stargate, a strategic deception unit, codenamed Torn Image, as a counter-narcotics deception officer, to disrupt the drug cartels in Colombia with a self-sustaining inter- and intra-cartel war. A decorated Cold War veteran, he brings unique perspectives gained from his military, scientific, and business experience to any audience, empowering teams and individuals to discover their untapped potential. David, welcome. Hey, Sean. It's good to be here. It's <laughs> always a pleasure to see you, my friend. Yeah, it's been a long week. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you doing right now? I mean, just high level. What are you, uh, <clears throat> how you keep yourself? Um, yeah, I am at a, uh, <clears throat> I'm at an organization called Upgrade that I'm partnering with and uh, we'll be bringing remote viewing to that up to the Upgrade audience. And it's a, uh, I mean, I think people can go to upgrade. It's upgrd.com, and you can read more about what's there. It's a good friend of mine, William Lamb, is the guy that is the president, the CEO, and the big lead teacher in all of it. it it's got a, a really interesting clientele. I mean, you've got everything from, <clears throat> from people who are just kind of starting out in business all the way up to, you know, multi-billionaires, you know, are here. And so... Uh, I've just been here this week, just setting in on both in it, like a level three of their training, just to see what they're doing and see what the people are like. And, and then also standing up and just presenting, uh, you know, the classes that I'm going to be presenting as part of this team approach to this. So it's kind of, it's fun, uh, but it's been, yeah, it's been intense. They, uh, uh, I have a feeling at the prices that they pay when they get here, they do not expect to slow down. So it's uh it's it's an interesting it's an interesting gig this week. So how are you doing in terms of uh when you were in the military you started out in or not started out but you were eventually made your way to a ranger regiment and I think following that <clears throat> assignment you kind of were trying to avoid uh, well there's something that happened when you were in the army 
uh, particularly when you were in the country of Jordan on a training exercise. And that kind of led yeah. you down the path into this this area that uh, we're talking about today, which is remote viewing. Can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, um, short version of the story is that uh, my, my it was Ranger Company was my second company command. <clears throat> I had two years as an Airborne Rifle Company commander, and then I had had two years as a Ranger Company commander. And then like kind of my final six months, uh, the Ranger Regiment was tasked by the Pentagon to send a Ranger company to pick one to go to the Kingdom of Jordan to train Jordanian Rangers. There was a, Ra a Jordanian Ranger battalion that was there. <clears throat> and so uh, my name came up because I was kind of, I was considered by the, by the Ranger Regimental Commander to be, uh, to be like the, the best trainer in the regiment, you know, that's what he said. So uh, maybe I was, maybe I wasn't. Anyway, my company was selected because my, my company was extraordinarily well-trained and, and it was a good company. It was really good, solid. You know, he knew it wasn't going to uh, in any way let them down in what they expected. So we were sent to the kingdom of Jordan uh, to train Jordanian Rangers. And I, I always cringe when I say this, but I have to say it. We were there to train Jordanian Rangers to kill Israelis. Because, you know, in the long run, uh, I mean, let's get real. Who else were the Jordanians, you know, pissed off enough to, you know, to go to war with? It was the Israelis. Certainly wasn't the Syrians, which they didn't like the Syrians and Syrians didn't like them. But, you know, they weren't going to go to war against the Syrians. But they would have gone to war to Israel at the drop of a hat if that's what was required. So it was an awkward, it was an awkward uh, mission to be there. But, you know, we just tried to look at the idea that we were building relationships with them. And our objective was to train them as best we could to incorporate them along to just doing live fire training like we did as Rangers. And uh, during one of the live fire exercises, I was moving with the assault element uh, because I always move with the assault element uh, as my job to evaluate the lieutenants that were leading the assault elements. And the support by fire position was up at a different location and it was hammering 10 bunkers. And I um, got shot in the helmet by a Jordanian machine gunner that was attached to our assault by fire position. We actually had two or three of them attached, but one of them either deliberately or completely ignorantly when the signal went out to shift fire to the right because the assault element was coming in from the left, uh, didn't do that, but, but swung his gun over and put like a 75 to hundred rounds of grazing fire, like one meter off the ground <clears throat> through the assault element. He just swept it back and forth. So, I mean, he's clearly, he knew what he was shooting at. So I, I don't know what they ever did. I didn't see the guy after this incident, but, um, because it was it was a big issue with the battalion, the Jordanian battalion commanders, but what happened was uh, it wasn't a ricochet, so it hit me directly in the helmet, and the Kevlar caught it. So <clears throat> that you know, two thousand eight hundred and thirty-two feet per second, roughly, uh, it hit me, and the kinetic energy of that went directly to the helmet. It just took me off my feet backwards. And uh, I was in a crouch position, so I wasn't real stable anyway. And uh, I was knocked out. And during the time I was knocked out, 
I had some sort of a vision, which I've redefined many times, both, you know, in the book. And then as I've matured and come to know more about what this was over the years, the decades, actually, at this point, uh, I've, I've kind of felt like it was me talking to me, but, uh, I didn't share that with anybody directly, particularly my Rangers. And I didn't share it with the battalion commander. I did, uh, share it with the battalion chaplain who happened to be there with us, who, uh, kind of got pale in the face and <laughs> didn't really know what to say about what I'd shared with him, which was, you know, in the book it, you know, psychic warrior, which I hate that title, but it, in the book, it says, uh, you know, that it was a ghost, an apparition, a phantom, something. I mean, it, it could have been, it, it wasn't any of those things. It was me, but it took, you know, my conscious mind was packaging it and, and based on something in my experience Rolodex that I was familiar with. So it, it looked kind of like maybe some Star Wars character, you know, wearing that kind of garb and things. And that just happens with your conscious mind doing that kind of thing. <clears throat> when I left that unit, uh, about six months later, I changed command and, uh, I'd had a couple of other episodes with that happening and it was a little disconcerting because I had no claim of clairvoyance and no claim of clairaudience or sentience and certainly no claim of ESP never even entered my mind ever. Uh, but now I find myself, uh, I find myself being recruited into this organization, Royal Cape. And then in Royal Cape, it is, you know, it's the activity. There's a book called Killer Elite, if anybody wants to read it. That tells you everything that the unit did. I don't know how the guy ever got, I don't know how the guy ever got somebody to tell him the whole of those stories and then to write it. But it's a very accurately well-written book. So Killer Elite, if you want to want to read that. I was a deputy executive officer there. <clears throat> so I. I ran a lot of uh, staff actions, and my job was to brief John O'Marsh Jr., Secretary of the you know uh, Secretary of the Army, and I would do that like three or four times a week on everything that was going on in the unit. Like any time the unit was moving outside a fifty mile radius of the Pentagon, it didn't matter if some operator was going on leave. I had to go brief John O'Marsh Jr. and get a signature, and the unit kind of brought that on themselves. That's just another story. So. Uh, you also required to do a counterintelligence poly, CI poly. Uh, and those, those came about every quarter, it seemed, uh, at the most every six months. And when you did a CI poly, you know, what they're looking for, it's not full lifestyle like in the CIA. It's, uh, it's just they're trying to determine if you divulge classified information or do you know anybody who has. But they go through a number of questions to determine that. After the CIA poly, you also then go in and visit with the lieutenant colonel psychologist, who's a clinical psychologist, uh, detailed to keep his finger on kind of the psychiatric pulse of this organization. Why? Mm -hmm. Because it's a top secret classified special access, access program, and those come with an inherent, inherent set of problems. You know, uh, alcoholism goes up, uh, divorce rates go up. Uh, it was a weird unit for those kinds of things. So, and it was my first exposure to that kind of lifestyle in that, in that world. And I just saw things that were really quite disturbing to be frank. And then I sat down with this psychologist the first time 
after passing the CI poly. And he goes through a series of questions, like a little checklist. And then his last question is, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Which I found creepy. But the second time I get around to this, uh, we go back and do the poly again, you know, months down the road. And then we're back in there again. And he asked me same series of questions. And then he asked me the last question again, like, is there anything else you would like to share? And I don't know what in the world possessed me to do it. I really don't know why I said it. I guess maybe I was looking for some answers as to what that might've been out in the desert and what might've been happening in other similar episodes. Like, uh, you know, best I could think, call them would be like uh, an out-of-body experience. That's the best I could come up with it. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. was like a... Was was noted for a number of things too. It was it his Batn al Ghul, and it was it was Batn al Ghul, the, the belly of the beast. It's a haunted haunted valley, according to uh, according to the Jordanian battalion commander. Uh, the Jordanian soldiers at night, when the wind would blow and their tents would rattle, would just shriek because they were certain that it was some banshee that was there waiting for them. It was also a place where the Hajj road. The road to Mecca snaked in and out of the sand there along one of the valley walls. <clears throat> and it also was a place where uh, the, the railroad that was uh, the same railroad that Sir Lawrence blew up with his Bedouin raiders, the same one. It was built at the turn of the century uh, by the Germans under contract to the Turks. Uh, so, yeah, my, my rangers blew that up. As well, we got permission from the Jordanians to do it. So we blew a big hole in it just for the fun of blowing it up and showing the Jordanians how to blow it up. And uh, yeah, it was a, that was all part of that. But now I'm at Royal Cape and, and I share with this Lieutenant Colonel what had happened there. And then these other minor episodes following that, you know, in the months that followed. And I wasn't really sure what he was going to do, but what he did do is he walked over to a file safe cabinet and opened it up and pulled out three blue folders that were stamped uh, top secret grill flame and handed those to me and said, I'd like you to give me your assessment of this in the morning. Uh, As I read through the folders, uh, I didn't know what I was looking at really, uh, but it was a transcript and it was, you know, of course, dated time group, et cetera classified and it was also clear that there were two different people involved in in this in this dialogue but they were both referred to as numbers and there were no designators on them like i didn't know it wasn't you know there were no alpha designators to kind of like maybe uh giving you an idea of of initials or something they were just numbered numbered personnel and i remember that the second one had something really intriguing in reading it. All of them, you know, there were sketches of locks with, with Arabic numbers or lettering on them. Uh, there were sketches of gates and doors and manholes, uh, you know, manhole covers of uh, stairways and more doors, very elaborate doors and uh, uh, just things like that. And, and I, I didn't actually know where what those were about or where it came from, but mm-hmm. some of the verbiage in the transcription caught my eye and my attention tremendously 
And for example, one that I remember that was quite poignant was a the individual saying to the other individual, are you outside the door where you're supposed to be? And the other individual replies, yes, I believe I am. And then the other person says, turn your attention to the door and pass through the door, pass through the wall and describe the contents of the room on the, you know, on the other side. Didn't say walk through it. Uh, it didn't say blow a hole through it and then tell me what's on the other side. It was pass through it. And I read that passage over and over again because just kind of made the hair stand up on the back of my, mat, my neck because I'm reading a top secret document. I'm reading it in a top secret organization in a skiff sitting there by myself at night at just reading this and drinking a pot of coffee and then going on to the next one and the next one. So what I was able to discern from it is that there are two individuals, clearly uh, one individual, they were both appeared to be physically located just by the, the way the dialogue unfolded. <clears throat> but the one was asking the other person to describe something that they were seeing outside of the physical space where they were located that I was able to discern in reading the three folders. So the next day I, uh, I was there when the good doctor came in and sat with him and said, you know, I'm fascinated. I I'm intrigued. I mean, it, but they start at that point, what's called a limited read on. And you know what that is, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the Intel community, particularly in special access programs, they don't bring somebody in whom they think might be interested in an assignment somewhere and then just flat out tell them everything. Because often they will tell people everything and then say, you know, do you want to be there? And the people go, hell no, <laughs> no, absolutely not. And then you have, now you have someone you have exposed uh, to all that intel, all that classified information about a unit. And they're telling you, no, under no circumstances, do I want to go do that? So the protocol is to give a limited read on, meaning just bit by bit mm-hmm. by bit by bit, and then assess more and assess more and assess, which he did over the, you know, the next six to eight months. And I guess probably around the eight month mark, which put me somewhere like 14 months in the organization, uh, 14 to 16 months, he then you know, takes me over to uh, Fort Meade, Maryland, and he brings me into, he was just, his limited read-on was continuing to give me these kinds of transcripts to look at, right? But now he takes me to Fort Meade, uh, and at that place, they're right across the street from the hospital and a communication center. There are two old wooden buildings that are sitting there. Mm-hmm. single story wooden buildings world war 2 buildings you know probably the last two remaining on fort meade maryland because and i know i i found out later that they had actually been uh, designated for destruction uh, but they just weren't destroyed yet because somebody was you know there <clears throat> I was thought, too. <laughs> oh definitely uh i mean the roof was all buckled in these green, you know, as glass asphalt tiles, it was all buckled and, you know, paint was peeling off the place. Uh, even the numbers, of the buildings, you really couldn't make out anymore. And they had big, huge security screens over all the windows. And they had uh, a giant, you know, metal frame door with a push button 
lock on it. And I always thought, chuckled to myself the first time I saw it, that, you know, somebody could have kicked the hole through the wall and walked in, you know, it wasn't, they, maybe they couldn't have gone through the security screen, but the, but those walls were not going to hold them out. And when I came in, when they opened up the door and I walked in with, um, with the doctor, <clears throat> the first thing I noticed was looking across the lobby and this giant mural painted on the wall across the lobby, which was only like 20 feet away. Building's like 20 feet wide and maybe mm-hmm. 80 feet long. It was a uh, baker's school in World War II, I found out, because it had red tiles, you know, as it was a kitchen all over the place in different places. And uh, <clears throat> this mural was painted a giant galaxy with red gaseous clouds and stars and everything in a galaxy like its own Milky Way, but not ours. I thought that is such a strange thing to walk into a building to see. Because as you know, Sean, you go into a military building and that building always reflects the nature of the unit. So if it's an right. armor, you know, command, it's tanks. You know, if it's artillery, there'll be artillery firing all over the walls. Infantry, it's guys, you know, nipple deep in a swamp doing stuff like that. So you're, you just looked at that and I went, Jesus, that's not something you see, you know, in a unit every day. And then I'm, you know, the doctor peels off and goes over to see Fern Gavin, who's the program manager there. And they go off in there into, into Fern's office. And I'm then uh, <clears throat> taken around by Ed Dames, who uh, introduces me to Robin and, uh, and to Angela and to Mel Riley. And Mel Riley, they're all in like the smokers section. You could still smoke in buildings in those days. So they're in a place where the smoke is quite literally at the ceiling and coming down to about the five-foot mark, right? And they are all, Robin and Angela have black, like, tablecloths over their gray army, you know, metal desks. And they're both laughing and talking back and forth, but they have tarot cards in front of them. Which I mean, I knew what they were, but I, I don't know what they do or I use them. And I just thought to myself, geez, that I, you have to be kidding me, right? <laughs> yeah, you have to be kidding me. Like, yeah, exactly. What did I get myself into? And then I, when I'm introduced to Mel Riley, um, who's passed now, Mel is sitting there and uh, he, is, he has a, a deer hide in front of him, fur down. And he is, he has a, box of different colored beads and he has a needle that looks like it's about the thickness you know size of a human of human hair and he's reaching down and putting pulling one bead up and pulling it down on this he is sewing it onto this deer hide and making this very elaborate intricate beautiful uh you know native american in, indigenous beautiful piece of artwork on this deer skin and i'm just thinking to myself and behind there are tomahawks and dream drums and you know, lances and everything else. So again, I don't even, I don't, I don't even know what to think, except <clears throat> this is very unusual for an organization. I go out, I meet Lim Buchanan. He's standing in his stocking feet. He's got one of those chairs you kneel on to type on. Looks just like a kind grandfather, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, Gabrielle Pettengale, and uh, who's a very nice woman, became my trainer ultimately. Uh, Paul Smith was there, but he was busy doing something else. We met, spoke briefly, 
Uh, and that was about who was there, you know, at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ed was Ed was smart. He was kind. He was endearing, you know, at that point. And um, I, I got a, a different vibe from them, but they were, they were all nice. You know, I, I didn't see any friction between any of them or potentially between me and them. I, I was then brought in to meet Fern Gavin and I sat down with Fern Gavin. The doctor came out, went and talked to all the other people and <clears throat> I guess to fill them in. And uh, I sat down with Fern Gavin and he looks at me and he says, I'm always impressed that there are young young officers willing to give everything up to come and be part of this unit to which to me, that was, that took me back. You know, it took me aback. I, I, I was like, I, I don't know what you mean by that because I haven't agreed to come anywhere. I don't even know what it is you do here. I've just been given a limited read on. I mean, I've been looking at a lot of stuff and I, I didn't even know if it was attached to you or if it wasn't attached to you. And Fern Gavin said, uh, what we do here is we train select individuals to enter into an altered state of consciousness, to transcend space and time, to view purses, places, and things remote in space and time, and to gather and report intelligence information on the same. And, and we would like you to ask, we would like to ask you to be one of us. Wow. You know, I, I didn't know what to think. Uh, I didn't, I said, I, I'm really going to have to go back. I need to talk to my commander, Colonel Lackey. I need to talk to my family. I said, I'm intrigued. I, I'm not saying no, uh, but please let me have some time to process this and think about it. So <clears throat> on we go back and, you know, I'm kind of having words with, with the Lieutenant Colonel because it's kind of like, wow, you didn't tell me if that's what we we're going to do or that you were going to bring me in there. He goes, well, I just needed them to see you and see if they were interested And I needed to talk to Fern and see if Fern was interested, and he is. So now you know they're interested, and they are the source of those documents you are reading. So if you continue to be intrigued by that, then I thought you might be intrigued about going to this unit and serving there for a period of time. When I got back and Colonel – yeah, go ahead. Now, based on that first impression, just going back to that moment, what are you thinking about? Like, are you optimistic that this is leading somewhere or are you kind of like, I got hoodwinked into, into some, you know, something crazy here. I didn't think crazy. I thought, Mm -hmm. you know, look, I already knew that I was on a journey into a world that I was not accustomed to seeing. I mean, Mm -hmm. just going into Royal Cape and seeing what Royal Cape did, which was, you know, support clandestine covert military operations in tier one and tier two countries uh, and do so with every imaginable bizarre thing. I mean, the first time I went to a, you know, a unit that had its own yacht, a unit that had a Rolls Royce, a unit that had a, you know, like a $260,000 solid gold watch in the safe that I actually put on my wrist one day. That was a prop for somebody doing something. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like the military's version of the human human intelligence part of CIA sort of some of it, right? Yeah. It actually came into existence precisely because the CIA, I mean, Claire George, the CIA and others said uh, quite simply, you know, our job is industrial economic, industrial and political espionage. Our job is not to have to support the military. Every time you go somewhere and do something. Mm -hmm. 
So the military took that to simply mean, okay, so screw you. We'll come up with our own program. And they did. And that got a lot of people into a lot of trouble because you'll remember like the yellow fruit trials and stuff. The military is not good at this, despite the fact that they thought they might be. I mean, Royal Cape was good at what it did, but when they started to actually first throw this all together, uh, they were handing suitcases of money to guys and, and telling them, you know, go backstop yourself in Germany, which means, you know, you now have a suitcase with $150,000 in it. You're, you're told don't keep receipts because that's a paper trail, you know, go to Germany, get a job as a bartender somewhere, get a girlfriend, get an address, get a, you know, get a driver's license, get identification, do whatever you got to do, but make yourself somebody who works and lives in Germany. Right. And I hope they didn't give that went along for a while. Thousand dollar briefcase to a, like a young specialist. You can only imagine the, you know, the things. It's that they, the, precisely the same thing. It got Dick Marcinko in trouble. You know, they were they were throwing money at these guys and giving them you know really broad instruction about what to do and what not to do, and it was just the wrong thing because you know leadership was doing this about this is how you have to this is how we form our own you know kind of spy agency to do what we need them to do for us. And the unfortunate thing is that somewhere along the line, probably the GAO, you know, found out about it. I don't really know who was the trigger puller on it, but I know that what happened is the government came back at the army for that reason. And of course, all the general officers, you know, found a finger to point at somebody else and it just went on down the road, but who ended up going to prison to being tried, court-martialed and going to prison were all the people they handed the money to. And, you know, and yeah, they, some of them misappropriated it. Dick Marcinko, uh, who was, you know, leader of SEAL Team 6, commander of them, you know, he, he was taking, you know, a secretary girlfriend on TDY trips and stuff like that, using that kind of money, you know, going in back some of his special ops money. And I mean, I'm not trying to put words into the guy's case, but I mean, that's what happened. Did, did, did and they he work her into an op or something? Did he try to work her into an op? No, he it, just took no, her with no, him. No, just, it, that, it, yeah, it was his girlfriend, more or less, yeah. I guess. And others did very similar things. I mean, you're told here's a, you know, 150000 or a quarter million dollars. Don't keep receipts. Don't tell us what you're spending it on. Use it to support yourself, to establish yourself as a you know, as a resident in this area so that if we need you, you can, mm-hmm. you know, find safe houses and, you know, corporations that have trucks and other kinds of things. That's what they were looking for. Uh, and I, you know, I told you before, you know, this is the organization that actually co-opted with the Mormon church to use non-LDS kids to go to the Mormon training center, missionary training center in Provo, Utah, and also to the language training mission uh, in Provo with the church leadership being witting. And they were, they were pushing these guys through all of that and then pulling them out and sending them into these, into countries in central and South America and, or any place else that they wanted to send them so that they could gather Intel, you know? Yeah. Using uh, the mission ma- as a, as a cover, I'm using the Mormon mission as a cover, yeah. which would put yeah. other Mormon missionaries at risk. <laughs> who had no connection whatsoever to the DOD. Absolutely. I mean, look, when I was at BYU, uh, 
one of my roommates, you know, my roommate was on a mission and said, yeah, he was in Central America somewhere. And he said, yeah, everybody down there thought we were like CIA all the time because we were walking around suits. And I was like, now, now I understand why, because here's, here's this unit that is set this thing up. I was really upset. I mean, I was really upset because as you know, I, at that time was, I was a high priest in the Mormon church. And I had served in a bishopric in the state presidency. And now, you know, here was this. And I, you know, I fired off this angry letter to the first, first presidency of the church in my naivete saying that, hey, I know what you're doing. And, you know, I demand an answer, <laughs> which, of course, they yeah, ignored that. the letter because they, they understood that they can't respond. If they responded, uh, it would have been you know, either a confirmation or a denial, right? And they weren't going to do either of those. And I, you know, I, I wrote back a second one demanding even more and said, if you aren't going to answer me, excommunicate me. And they didn't excommunicate me because that too would have been, you know, a, yeah. an admission or a denial, right? So <clears throat> they weren't going to do that and they didn't do it. And so there we were. It was what that was. But now I'm, you know, I come back to that unit from that day, the visit to Fort Meade. And the, the uh, lieutenant colonel psychologist goes in to talk to Colonel Lackey. He's there. It, this unit, Royal Cape, is commanded by two colonels, full colonels. Uh, colonel Lackey, who is an intelligence, special forces intelligence officer. Uh, both, he's an 06. He is the, he's the commander. The deputy commander is uh, Colonel, again, uh, full Colonel Special Forces Infantry Officer, uh, Bob Glass. And I can remember hearing uh, Colonel Lackey screaming like I have never heard him scream before at the top of his lungs at the psychologist, cursing at him for what he had done, you know, in doing all of this. And then the psychologist, he gets, he orders him out of his office. He comes out of his office. And as he passes me, he looks at me with these really frightened eyes. He goes, he's ready for you now. <laughs> <laughs> so I he's walk in the battlefield for you. Right. Oh yeah. Thank you very much. I walk in and set up an ambush either way. Yeah. So. It was, it was, oh man. I walk in and it's Colonel Lackey's there. And Colonel Glass is there sitting in a chair next to Colonel Lackey's desk. And, uh, it kind of starts off with almost kind of forgiving pleading, you know, like you don't know what you're doing. This is just really stupid. I know you didn't know what that was going to be. You know, the goddamn psychologist got you all involved in this thing and wrapped up in it. You, you know, you can't go do this. You just can't go do it. It's not, it's a career ending move. If you do this, you go there, it's nothing but a, organization of misfits and freaks and nobody has anything good to say about it and if you go there you'll never get the stink off of you and that's it that's it do you understand me and colonel glass is i mean uh, is glass is sitting there going <laughs> going up and down so i said sir I, I have not made a decision i i just i want to talk to my wife i am intrigued by the idea of this and uh and so I did. I, I went home and talked to my wife. He was really upset. He was noticeably upset that I refused to give him an answer right then and there. But he also was a professional officer. 
And he knew that I had a right to go, even though he didn't want me to go because he wanted me to stay there. Uh, and the next day, he and I always ran to work every morning, uh, like seven miles. So we, next morning, <clears throat> I, I go over to his house, and which was behind mine, and uh, I pick him up and we run to work. And, you know, the conversation all the way there was back and forth about about just about everything, his whole philosophy out about it, his his concerns about it, his he was really genuinely concerned about me. And by the time you know we we got to the unit and you know got showered and in uniform ready to start the day, I still had not made a decision, but it didn't take you know but another day or two, and I just came in, stood at attention in front of his desk, and I said, sir. I've, spoken to my wife and she's okay with this and she understands my choice. And I'm really hoping that you will be as well. I've, mm -hmm. I've got to try this. I, you know, I, I have to look at this You know, I have some issues with it and I have to look at this and I look, I'll be very honest. I mean, I also was really upset that we were orchestrating this missionary thing out of that unit. Right. I mean, I didn't right. point that out to Colonel Lackey, but it was weighing really heavily on me. But you, we you, you can see how it makes sense, though, from the Department of uh, Defense's perspective. Oh, right? I, yeah, I get it. And, you know, it's not the only church to do stuff like that. Believe right. me, right. it's not. Right. Um, so he was really upset, but, you know, he, okay, all right, I understand your decision. So I started out processing that unit, and then uh, I would drive from Fort Belvoir, where I lived, all the way over to Fort Meade every day, which that was maddening. But I, you know, I went there and I got read in and I got uh, taken to DIA and uh, signed in there and, you know, read, you know, read all your briefings uh, and read onto the program and advised of what you can talk about, can't talk about, et cetera, what I might be exposed to, et cetera. Uh, you signed, uh, you signed, uh, there was a, an agreement that you signed stating that you were participating in an experimental intelligence collection methodology uh, and that you would not hold the government responsible uh, for anything that happened there, which I, of course I turned around and went like, well, what could happen? You know, like, what do you mean? What, what could happen? And it was like, nothing is just a standard, you know, it's mm -hmm. a standard document you sign is, is part of a, I think it's called a human use agreement. I think that was what it was called. Incidentally, during your time at <clears throat> any time at the unit, did anybody have one of those adverse? Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Having. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Reactions? That you're aware of okay me you know but no but 
for a different, you know, for, and I'll explain that. Don't let me forget that. So <clears throat> I started my training program, but first thing that they asked me to do when I got there, Gabrielle took me over and took me to a file safe again. This one was on the far right. You know, you know what those things look like. They're, they're like, like 28 inches deep and however many inches wide, they're four drawers high and they spin the dial and open it up. They open them up all, you know, all of them in the morning when they come in, they put the big magnetic sign on it says open. And then I, she popped the front top drawer on this thing, pulled up the, the first file in the front. And she goes, okay, you start here and you read every file, you know, backwards. And then you start in the next drawer down and the next drawer down. And when you get done with the last file on the bottom drawer, come see me. Well, that took me like two weeks to get through all of that. It took How many literally. Do you estimate that was? Oh, good God! I I have thousands. no idea. Thousands. And it, what it was was the history of everything in since this since like 1972 or 1970. Everything that the U.S. government thought that it knew about, you know, a Soviet program. Uh, Chinese program, and these were all the the, the human intelligence uh, briefs that came in in the seventies that caused the CIA to actually go into uh, you know put a sole source bid in, or put give a sole source contract to Stanford Research Institute International to investigate ESP, right, uh, and to determine scientifically if it was real. Or not? Could it be proven scientifically, or could you disprove it scientifically? Because the concern was, and I, I have to admit, I have to say to your audience that this was a human intelligence source. There's somebody who recently, a woman who wrote the book Phenomenon. Phenomenon. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> Jacobson is her last name, and she's making the claim that there are these. Recently Annie found Jacobson or Ann Jacobson, Annie Jacobson, like yeah. <clears throat> Recently found uh, German documents pertaining to uh, this group that was uh, researching things for and in behalf of Himmler through Himmler to Hitler. Uh, Is that the Tule Society? No, they were part. They were they were a segment of it, but no, it's the. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the name of it. It's because it's German and I don't speak German. So, but if you look around, it's big stuff, right? Something like that. It's, you know, it's a, anyway, it's a, I can tell you exactly what it was because I've read them. Uh, mm -hmm. Because this claim was made that that was the promulgating series, you know, trove of documents that caused the psychic war uh, to begin between the United States and the Soviet Union. Well, it wasn't any such thing because, <laughs> I mean, if you look at it, there the letters are broken down into four categories coming out of this thing, and they are mostly between the director of this organization and the you know the the direct deputy director or the individual that was in charge of the the archives or the curator for this organization. And what they were going after was. Everything has supported this, the whole Aryan uh, theology. So they were trying to find, trace the roots of language and the 
Aryan origin, origin, all of those things to support that. And they were doing it, mm-hmm. you know, across Europe. They were, you know, going into all kinds of different places to do it. There was a, a Norwegian project that had absolutely, you know, nothing to do with anything of the occult or anything else. Mm-hmm. Mostly what they were trying to do was get Norwegian scientists to work with them, linguists and others. And of course, they occupied Norway. Uh, and so the Norwegian scientists wanted freaking nothing to do with them. And it was all letters back and forth within the leadership of this organization reporting back to Himmler about why they couldn't get all these things done. They couldn't establish, you know, a scientific, uh, a scientific center in Norway and make this happen. Uh, you, it's also that they had another one that was, uh, that, that the two others had everything to do with just the study of the origin of the Aryan people and where they were spread across Europe, again, trying to track, track the whole lineage of where they went and how they got there and the language changes and other things. So right on into, into, into the UK and other things, that's what they were looking at. And then the other one was just simply uh, map points uh, for Aryan origins, you know, like Aryan cities or Aryan village and con, you know, that's what they were looking for language and location, something to shore up their, this, uh, this new ideology that they have, uh, that they're trying to put forth to the German people. But there was one that, uh, that dealt with, um, there was one that dealt with dowsing and it was the dowsing project. So the one that dealt with the dowsing project uh, also worked, had pendulum work done in it and was being studied. And also it had um, astrology was, was being added into that. But the interesting thing is that there was the minister of propaganda and of uh uh, you know, something to do with the with the culture for the people, for the German people. And then there were the state police. And all of those organizations were against anything to do with the occult and were against any of the efforts by this organization to do this. And anytime they found these organizations of dowsers studying, they're doing and working with dowsing rods and all this stuff or pendulum, they would arrest them and throw them in prison confiscate all of their writings, their documents, and everything else. And so Himmler, trying to keep his myths out of all of this, was sending these, you know, the leaders of this organization to go in and try to negotiate this stuff. And so the whole thing in that dowsing project series of letters, the trove that's there, uh, dealt with precisely just that, back and forth, you know, who was giving them a hard time, who was arresting their people, uh, why they and couldn't this was, get this was in the documents that you had to to read through? yeah <clears throat> yeah oh wow because i wanted to find because the claim was made that there was a letter there that became the promulgating document in you know in in, in the cia in the 70s or earlier you know starting you know kind of attributing it back to maybe nk ultra and then into uh into this the formulation of stanford research institute and the study of you know, clairvoyance, clairsentience, clairaudience, right? ESP, et cetera. So I read the entire translated file that's still there. There are still some letters that are being translated, 
but I read everything that had been translated and I, you know, prepared a, a synopsis of those things. So it had nothing to do with any of that. It didn't light the fuse on anything. I'm sure that we were probably interested in what the heck they were doing with dowsing, but I can tell you this, the documents said, the letters said that where they, what they were looking at it was for military and civilian applications. Okay. And then it said uh, they were looking for, they were going to be using dowsers and certain kinds of dowsing rods, and they were going to be looking for oil, uh, you know, so petroleum. Uh, they were going to be looking for minerals uh, and, you know, gems, uh, other kinds of things. Uh, that, that's what they were going to be looking for. So find hey, riches. Folks, folks, if you're just joining us, you're listening to United Public Radio, and I'm interviewing Dr. David Morehouse, who is uh, one of the original members of Project Stargate, the remote viewing unit in the Department of Defense. Sorry, David, go ahead, continue. No, it's okay, man. You know, I know. You get on a rant. So that's what they were doing. There was no evidence that it triggered anything. Uh, <clears throat> so back to what I was looking at again, I, I'm going through all the historical files and looking at everything that we knew or thought that we knew. And ba again, back to this, what actually you know, lit the fuse under the CIA to start looking yeah, at this has never yeah. been proven that, I mean, in other words, there are no, they don't know where the human intelligence source came from. So that's never been named. Uh, it's just been kind of rumored that there were human intelligence sources uh, either in the Soviet Union or in China or both that said that both of those countries during the Cold War were heavily engaged in trying to identify naturally gifted clairvoyants, uh, clairvoyants to utilize as intelligence collectors. And they wanted to start as young as they possibly could because they had a belief in it and they wanted to be able to, to get that, to train it, to nurture it, to build it and to make them extraordinarily effective. And so that's what caused the CIA in, in 70 in the researching of that to turn around then and spend some time getting their ducks in a row and getting, you know, getting out a request for proposals, which they reviewed and then selected Stanford Research Institute International in Palo Alto with Targ and put off its et al to go ahead and do this research and to find out scientifically prove that it's, it's there or it's not uh, tell us who will be good at this so we can scrape them out of the population and train them and use them in our, to our intended needs, right. Or, or objectives. And then three, can you, you know, if you can prove it and tell us who we need to get, can you, can you build an, a training program for them? Well, all three of those were answered at least to a degree, you know, that you can read there. And, and one was simply that they, it didn't take them long to come back and go, well, based on our evidence, the ability exists and we, it exists undeniably and scientifically proven uh, and very strongly. And again, I've, as I've told this story, uh, you know, CIA never puts, they never trust anyone, especially in something that's controversial. And even though they were a contract, sole source contract, they were going to make sure that that science was good and it would stand up to the test of time and scrutiny. So they brought in two auditors and two auditing companies. And I believe it was SAIC and Pear Labs who were both part of or tried to get the contract but didn't. 
but they came in and audited, audited uh, SRI International, audited the and science. Parallel Labs is, is the one at Princeton, right? And then SAIC <clears throat> right. is... Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. All over. Uh, but they, they came back and, and they had minor criticisms of some of the procedures, but, you know, bless the science is good. Just had some minor corrections, which one would expect that, especially from you know, agencies that didn't get the contract and you did, that they're going to come in and they're not going to give you 100% glowing remarks. I don't think the CIA wanted that either. So, but they didn't come in and say it was worthless and, you know, the science was bad and they did it poorly. They didn't say that. So it stood. And so the next question was, uh, who is going to be good at this? And I was it was the, what was said, it was very empowering, which was, well, we believe that based on our evidence, this is an inherent ability in everybody. You're born with this ability. It's just a matter of whether or not you choose to recognize it and or whether or not you're willing to be trained to recognize it and utilize it and embrace it fully. So that's where they got through the second deliverable and then where they failed was in the third deliverable because they're physicists, you know, they're, they're researchers. They're not trainers. They have the slightest idea how to build a training program for anything. To my knowledge, they weren't even professors at, you know, at universities, they were researchers. So they design tests, they execute those tests, they collect data, they analyze the data and they write their, their findings. That's what they do but they are not military trainers, far from it. So the very idea that they were ever going to be able to do that was laughable, frankly. Uh, so the army under INSCOM took Ingo Swan because Ingo Swan was the guy that- By the way, Ed Reardon just joined us and uh, he's, you know, he's a remote viewer. His group, the Future Forecasting Group, for people who are watching the Super Bowl right now, we're competing against the Super Bowl, David. Um, I see. In real, in real time. Good luck with that, y'all. Yeah, the, the surface. Sounds like Darwin is Darwinism at its finest for me. So anyway, I, I had to, I had to give that shut up. So sorry to interrupt. Continue, please. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Ingo Swan, then, who created this protocol, uh, mm. was brought in circa 78 79 to start training people uh i never knew it but apparently he trained some of the people only to stage three for some reason and he trained other people all the way out to stage six there was a seventh stage that i was trained on but i was never going to do it it was a fanatic stage and i just wasn't going to do it it was like barking at the moon kind of thing and i was not I just thought that was preposterous to be doing a, I understood, I understood the theory and the mechanism, but I wasn't going to do it. And I was, so I was trained all the way through to stage six. Then Mel Riley was trained through to stage six. Uh, I know Ingo told me he only trained Ed Dames to stage three, but Ed Dames always went to stage six. So he learned stage six, either from Gabrielle or from somebody else. Paul Smith stage and three kept only changing it too. So like stage three at an earlier stage in time may have well, he modified of the current modified it and improved it and did other things to it. Uh, it was a constant, you know, work in progress to make it better, you know, 
as especially as it was applied as an intelligence collection methodology uh, then it, it you know things were discovered that worked and didn't work so structure was changed a little bit uh, categories of data were modified uh, and so anyway that it it and still does get that way i mean all of us who have done it and taught it for decades uh, understand that there are things that improvements that can be made in it, and we make those improvements. Uh, it just—it's a natural flow of uh, of it. We, nobody violates the principle; only the technique slightly changes in a, in a couple of areas. So that was brought, and it was brought into the unit, and so there it was. But I saw a lot of other things in the historical files which were bizarre. I mean, like remote viewing detectors in the Soviet Union yeah. that were supposed yeah. to detect the energy flux of viewers, which to me, it just it, it doesn't pass my scientific mind test because well, yeah, if, talking if about remote viewing works, you know. Yeah, if remote viewing works through a Faraday cage, there, there must be a mechanism that's not at least detectable from a or electromagnetic an electromagnetic field doesn't necessarily it works without one essentially right yeah i mean it was written up it was written up in english that there was a photograph of it and it was written up the descriptions of of how it was supposed to work apparently it was supposed to be calibrated to have a uh you know have a ceiling a frequency ceiling and floor and so everything in the room that was going to be in the room uh was basically set you know they knew what that frequency was going to be of the number of personnel in the room and they would close in the ceiling and the floor on it so you had a very narrow band of allowable energy i I understand the concept but for my physics mind i cannot at all see how it could be done or even from electrical engineering how it could be done but the theory was that if something came into the room that was lower than the floor frequency or higher than the floor frequency that this detector would pick it up and then sound alarm and then the meeting would immediately close. So whether it worked or not, I think is unsubstantiated. But what's really important is that we understand that that was a concern. And so therefore, you know, some, some Intel collector got that and it was part of the historical file. So it, as I said, again, it took me two weeks to get all the way through the historical file. And then I started my training. And my trainer was solely uh, Gabrielle Pettengill. The only other people who occasionally um, substituted for particular things was either Mel was either Mel Riley or Ed Dames. And usually because Ed Dames uh, is a really smart guy, and you know he speaks speaks writes and reads Mandarin Chinese, and uh, you know, both of his sons are physicists now, you know, Enoch and Aaron, and he's a physicist and an astronomer. So I, he's a guy that I could call in and ask science questions to, because he could speak the science that I needed to hear about why we theorize we're able to do this, as opposed to just somebody telling me, if you do this or put your pen here, do this, and, you know, this is going to happen. Because I was really skeptical because remember, I was the only guy, the only special operations combat arms officer ever brought into this unit. And I was the only guy ever brought into the unit that had absolutely no statement of any kind of precognitive ability 
or ESP or clairvoyance, clairaudience, clairsentience. I mean, that, those words, those thoughts never entered my mind ever. I mean, I understood why I was there and I understood what I was learning and what I was going through, but the very idea that that was uh, something that I would ascribe to myself was foolish. I mean, it was just ridiculous. That wouldn't happen. So I fought against the results for weeks. But the beauty of the, of the structure and the beauty of the training and, and of doing the training targets and the feedback and then you know, back at it again and back at it and back at it again is eventually, you know, it's, you know, you're 12 weeks down the road in this and the volumes of data as you move through the structure become so overwhelming. Uh, and when you get your feedback, the idea that you were able to just pull that out of thin air is, mm -hmm. is too overwhelming. And the idea that you would have made that up out of nothing. And yet so much of the data correlated with what you were expected to see you get to a place where you could just, you can't explain it away anymore. And when that happens, the switch flips, you know? Because they trained you against actual targets that you could verify in hindsight. So after you got something completely blind, right? You got eight digit coordinates or six digit coordinates, whatever it was. That, uh, initially, Two sets of four I, numbers, eight. Two sets and, of four. Uh, and they were initially actual geospatial coordinates but later on they made them right. no not in the unit they were this this became one of the criticisms for sri uh they were using lat long <clears throat> right and initially they were using lat long and what they didn't realize is that you you start using lat long right. over time people start to you know understand the patterns that are being established and they they start to understand that it recognize the lat long that you're giving them yeah, and they that, start that to understand Moscow, the area where it is yeah right, right so then they just you know the human mind can't help itself yeah you know that it wants to springboard into that and go well i know what the buildings look like there or in that area or in that region so they were told that that needed to be removed and there needed to be another way in which to do it well, review the bidding i mean you, if you're not doing lat long then you're doing grid mercator which would be exactly the same thing as latitude and longitude right it's just right. kind of grid grid system that ground forces use to navigate on the surface of the earth and then or you could uh you know go to a cartesian coordinate system which that would not have worked uh it wouldn't have worked at all in the way that they were trying to make it happen so the two sets of four numbers, the, the you know, the coordinates being randomly assigned numbers representative of the concept of the target in the mind of the individual assigning the coordinates. And that's uh, all you get. I don't think you just, get, you just get those four numbers get. Or, or two sets of four numbers and that's it. That's correct. And I do not believe that 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 uh, SRI ever changed from using lat long. I, I'm not I'm uncertain about that, but I don't think they ever changed it. I think they kind of got into the way they were going to do things, which was monitored. And then they had their favorite subjects and they used them a lot. Uh, and monitoring a subject, in my opinion, is, is, uh, corrupt, is corrupting the session because there's no way that a monitor moves a viewer around without having some bias in what the viewer is supposed to see or how they're supposed to get there. Even if the monitor is... Uh, blind. So in other words, the, the experiment 
the session's double blind. The viewer doesn't know and the monitor doesn't know. The viewer still disrupts the, you know, I mean, the monitor disrupts the viewer's flow, their ability to detect, decode, objectify uh, without interference, without, you know, some sort of external judgment or influence, you know, telling them, no, I don't go to stage three, I want you to stay in stage two or, you know, or go from stage two to stage three now, you know, or focus more on that sketch or et cetera. It's, it's, when I was in the unit, you, as soon as you were deemed operational, meaning you'd ended all your training and you had successfully completed it all and passed all of your oral exams, so to speak, you know, because you had to articulate the theory of each of those uh, to the trainers. And once you had done that and they made you operational, you never used a monitor again. Mm-hmm. Never. So to use a monitor was like a crutch to take a monitor in to do that. Now, it wasn't unusual for a monitor to step in when you're learning a new technique, a more advanced form of the phenomena. For example, uh, the man, the person that taught me extended remote viewing was Fern Gavin. And so mm-hmm. Fern Gavin would do that by teaching me the protocol and then taking me over and having a do a, do a target with him in the room monitoring me. But he only did that for, you know, a month. And then he said, okay, you, you know, you're cleared, you're cleared hot to do this, to use this on your own. So from that point forward, uh, you're on your own to do it. But it, all of those things, even looking back now, uh, the, the unit lacked so much just cohesion in the manner in which it did things. You know, I've said this many times, uh, there was no manual. There was no uh, program of instruction. You know, and I'm a military trainer, and I was a good one, and still am. And it really just upset me that you come in and go, well, is there a training outline? No. Is there David, a program is it, of instruction? But they didn't have no. a manual, or was it just like a, a, like a bunch of papers or documents, but that weren't really helpful? They didn't have anything. They didn't have one piece of paper with anything written on it as a protocol. And I know that, you know, one of my former colleagues claims that he wrote a manual, but you had heard Lynn Buchanan tell you with me present right there mm-hmm. that that was not a manual. It was a, it was a basically an advertising document that they gave to VIPs if they showed up there to say, here's what we do because a, a general it's a walks document. in. It's like a briefing yeah, document. It was a briefing document. It was like 12 or 13 pages long and it maybe got expanded to 23. But it, rather than stand there in front of a general and go, well, here's what we do, it was a briefing document, but it was by no means a manual. And to say so is just a falsehood. It was not a manual. A manual is something that teaches you how to do something that truly Tasks, gives you the background. And standards, right. Tasks, exactly. Standards, exactly. Right. So the only time that was written was by me in the last three months that I was in the program because Dr. Jack Verona and Fern Gavin asked me to write it. So I did, and it was 230 pages. And from what I understand, it never made it anywhere because clearly some of the folks that have been there for 10 years or 15 years or 16 years were like looking at it and going, no way this guy was only here for three years, you know, is, is going to write, leave a document behind that we now have to consider our manual. I mean, that was one place where despite, you know, what you might think egos, Egos flew in that area. I'll tell you, it was a bizarre place well, like but that. that. But, but I've that's never been in an organization the, fought 
like that. But that's part of kind of, I think some of your struggle with it kind of <clears> post uh, leaving the unit. Cause as you said, you were there for th- three years, but it also kind of gave you a sense, kind of a better view into, or I don't know about a better view, but a more complete <laughs> view in terms of having a window on reality and seeing it changes the way it changes the way you see the world. It changes the way you see your role in the world changes. It changes your perceptions of, people it you 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 get you can see narcissism you can see sociopathy you can see you know psychopathy and all of its manifestations even in yourself right mm-hmm. you can see it because you become hyperintuitive i mean you're three years of doing this day in and out day out day in and day out you know and, and always my big buzz phrase to folks is look Everybody believes something, right? We believe that there is something beyond the physical or we believe there isn't anything beyond the physical. And some people believe there is something beyond the physical and they can reach it, interact with it. But the vast majority of people overwhelmingly believe that there's something beyond the physical, but don't believe that they will ever, ever be able to interact with it, learn from it or contribute to it. And every poll done, including, you know, Pew Research poll on this very same thing, conclude that the only thing that's changed is the number who, of people who disbelieve uh, has increased by a number, a number of points. And the number of people who don't believe they will ever be able to interact with whatever is beyond the physical has increased. So the number of believers that they might be able to do this has decreased. So it's a, it's, you know, that's just where we are. And the one thing that being part of this, as I said, you know, you're like three months into this and you can just no longer deny what you're capable of doing, that a switch flips and that switching of that flip is you no longer believe that there might be something beyond the physical. You now know that there's something beyond the physical and you now know that you are part of it and that you have always been part of it. And you now know that you have the ability to work within it, work with it, to contribute to it and to take from it, to learn from it. And that is, that, is a, that is a human transformation because you can spend a lifetime believing something in a religion or wherever you choose to make it. But until you have an empirical evidence, and I mean an empirical evidence, anytime somebody tells me they know something and they cannot substantiate that empirically, I will tell you, you know nothing. You do not know. You just choose to believe very strongly. I don't care what you tell me. If you cannot offer me the empirical evidence as to why you're now telling me you know it, then you don't know it. So you won't know it until you do that, till you do the work in, in this particular genre, you do the work in the physical and the non-physical, and you come to this point where you stop believing and you know that it is there because of empirical evidence and experience, not anecdotal you know, claims of, of something. And that's just the way it is. I mean, that's how I see it. That's how I teach all of my students to think about it. Uh, and they know that, you know, anecdotal serves a purpose to, to some degree in, when you're sharing information, but empirical evidence is what we do to determine, you know, am I on target or not on target and how, you know, looking at quantifiable measurable attributes in your feedback and, and looking at the correlating data with that and establishing, you know, a statistical relevance for your work in there and for the entire class's work and being able to see how all of us are better than one of us, right? Which is why 
You know, you don't ever trust the res results of a single remote viewer operating right. independently of other remote viewers. All it, of us are like better any than intelligence one. tool, right? It's like yes. any intelligence tool. You can't rely a hundred percent on satellite intelligence. You can't rely a hundred percent on in human <clears throat> intelligence. You have to take a mosaic or you have to look at the mosaic of various all source, source intelligence. That's why it's there. That's right. You know, 32 different intelligence collection methodologies out there back then it wasn't that many but that is that many now and not any one of them is considered 100 accurate if they were all if they were considered 100 accurate they wouldn't need 32 of them you know so you know remote viewing held its own as it was expected to hold its own and in, um, in and amongst all of the other intelligence collection methodologies never 100 accurate never will be because why because it has it's it's a human involvement. It has a human interpretation of the data. And then it has another human interpretation of what, you know, what every remote viewer produced. An analyst is a human interpretation. There's nothing that produces 100% accurate. I mean, even if it's a satellite photo, it's interpreted by a human being, right? It, it, it doesn't matter what it, what it might be. I mean, God, we went to war in Iraq because of human intelligence. So that shows you how that is, how accurate that is, <laughs> you know, it, it's just, so you can't turn you can't overstep what it's capable of doing and you can't lie about your accuracy and you can't try to stand as an independent operator talking about how good you are, because I promise you, I'll show you how you aren't, you know, everybody has good days and bad days. Everybody has good days. And we have cycles of performance. And as remote viewers, it's like we have cycles of performance in everything, every other aspect of our lives. It's absolutely no different. So when you start hearing somebody standing up and saying, I'm, you know, I'm habitually 70% accurate, or I'm the highest, uh, most accurate all the time. It's just bullshit. <laughs> it's just ridiculousness because it does not work that way. And, and it's in a class, even with new viewers learning, you know, somebody will get real disheartened because in measuring their data against the quantifiable attributes, they will be, they're given in their feedback, whether it's a hundred or 200 or 250 attributes saying these elements should be perceivable in this target. There'll be some people, you know, as they're learning this and they're struggling with the protocol to come back and go, shit, you know, I was like, I was like 8% accurate. I don't care. You know, I care. What I care about is you learning the protocol because that person over there who had a 68% target today, watch, <laughs> you know, just watch because literally, and this is something you know, anybody tomorrow can learning, do, right? Absolutely. You can. You, absolutely. You can. As long as you can listen to what I'm telling you to listen to and the things that I tell you to leave at the door, you have to leave at the door. You can't come through and uh, you can't bring crystals. You can't, you can't wear crystals. You can't bring crystals. And you, you have to learn to, to look at this with kind of a pure eyes and, and mm -hmm. because everything changes with this because it's a dogmatic process, right? It's not a, it's not a freewheeling, you know, write down whatever's coming. You're, you have to move through the protocol as a dogma. You have to follow it, follow the rules of it. And you get there. Because why? Because I have to make sure that it's going to be empirical for your experience. Because my objective is to transform, is to have that transform, that transformation switch flip. That's my objective for you. Because after that, you know, what you choose to do next, if you want to go to extended remote viewing or 
advanced techniques or thought incubation and mastery or explorers, whatever you want to do, that's up to you. But my whole objective in this is to get you through coordinate remote viewing to get you to a transition to transition to be in this place just, of belief of knowing, quick, not David, believing. I want to give you a, give you a chance to just do a quick <clears throat> plug. If they want to learn remote viewing from you specifically, <clears throat> where, where can they look, and what are you working on that where they might be able to do that? Well, there there are two places right now. Primarily, I I would say that most of the people here would probably want to go to davidmorehouse.org, not davidmorehouse.com. I am not in charge of that website and I don't I do not endorse it. So go to davidmorehouse.org and there are no classes on the schedule there but you can read the course descriptions and see the prices. For others, uh if you're so inclined, go to upgrade upgrd dot com uh and there you'll see my friend and partner uh, uh william lamb and i will warn you those you know just their course packages are expensive it's a different it's a different audience okay? their, their customer base is corporate it sounds like that's, that's yeah the they, they are corporate and they are they're corporate business owners so like i said to you earlier you know there are some that are just starting out that are here but there are some there are multi billionaires in in this in this audience that are there. So, mm-hmm. I mean, <clears throat> it's 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 crazy. <laughs> okay, I mean, there are other places yeah. folks can you know if you if yeah you if, if you want to learn from me, those the are the two places unit. you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, now you're doing this remote viewing. What are some of the targets that you started out with while you were in the unit? You mean operational targets? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a rogues gallery. You know, it's, it's the same thing at any, you know, that would pop up in Intel. I mean, it's anything we're in a cold war. I mean, some of the ones, you know, were flight 803 over Lockerbie, Cal 007, uh, you know, uh, different kinds of meetings that were taking place in the Kremlin, uh, drug shipments, where were they on freighters? What were the freighters going to do in the open sea? Uh, <clears throat> you know, anything. You just imagination. Anything with military tangible intelligence Military targets. target, target value, high value <laughs> targets, that sort of stuff. The anything that comes through from all source intelligence requests, mm-hmm. you know, comes from whatever agency it comes through. It comes through the DIA and the DIA tasks it out to all of their assets. And we were one of those assets. So we would work that target and, you know, over whatever the amount of time was given for it to be worked. And Fern Gavin would do an aggregate and pull it all together and do the analysis and do a, you know, a summary correlating all the data's data in the viewer summaries and sessions uh, and aggregate sketches occasionally, and then send those forward to DIA to the analysts who would then, you know, I'm assuming package it along with other uh, other individual or other sources that they that they uh, requested or tasked, and pull that together and send it back to the customer, whoever that customer happened to be. Were there any targets that you observed that were not necessarily <laughs> operational targets? Because I don't, I don't, I'm not aware of you having done any. You may have, but any done any operational targets that are uh, more esoteric in nature or off world targets of things that you can't necessarily, 
<clears throat> verify with other sources of intelligence for practice. I know your friend Ed Dames may have assigned you <clears throat> some of these things. Well, it wasn't just Ed. I mean, it was Fern would, was instrumental in doing it as well. And there were, I know that there were some individuals in the unit that Fern just flat wouldn't have tasked. So, I mean, that's why you run into these things where you hear from me, you'll hear from me and from Ed, and you would have heard from Mel Riley. You heard from Lynn Buchanan when we were on mm -hmm. together, you know, that we all worked off planet targets, that that was a standard tasking to us. Uh, some of them were done uh, as kind of calibration because they had empirical evidence that could be used as feedback, like Twin Peaks on Mars or you know, looking for a particular rover location and being able to describe it. And again, these are all blind. These are just the intent of the target. The viewer has no idea. Or <clears throat> looking into Olympus Mons or, you know, any other thing that they had that they just wanted to make sure that they could know that, let you see that you had the ability to detect, decode, and objectify waveform expressions of data whether it was on Mars or whether it was on the front side of the moon or the back side of the moon or, you know, uh, some other place, but they had to have empirical evidence of it. They had to be able to say, you know, here are photos of what's there or what was left there, that kind of thing. And then, you know, once you had crossed that particular bridge, uh, then there were, you know, there was a, an entire elaborate process used where a Cartesian coordinate system was applied uh, to a, a representative, a model uh, of the known universe, right? Or uh, the suspected so quadrants the of stars and, and, and stuff like that. <clears throat> right. I mean, it could be it could be particular star in a particular galaxy could be used, but when you start doing uh, that, would been a pinpoint target, right? they have a star that's numbered and they know that what that is well they probably can get from some astronomy department or whomever was taking photos of and numbering that star within the galaxy information about that star in, in, in basic terms yeah, analysis star, of right right, right. <laughs> gas makeup you know mass makeup mass of the star etc and and then there were others that were called open search outwards, which were, again, this is a Cartesian system. You know, we, we know that the universe began from a point of singularity and, and the idea of a big bang, people think it exploded out where that's a misnomer. It's not what happened. It's, it's not at all what happened. What happened is it came from a point of singularity and began to expand outward. And, you know, and, and mass then began to form and it continues to expand outward. This is been known for a very long time amongst physicists and, uh, and astronomers or cosmologists. And there's been a great deal of work done trying to, you know, go from what they know the expansion speed in the universe is to calculate back to the point of singularity and then to extrapolate outward to try to determine, you know, how, how big is the universe now? Is now we now know it's not eternal. We know that it had began from a point and spread outward. And, and mm -hmm. I'm not disappointed in by saying or realizing it's not eternal, because what intrigues me now is if it 
if it has an edge, what's it in? You know, what's it, what did it expand into? And, uh, you know, and there are all sorts of other, you know, theories that now uh, intrigue me and others uh, who, like, if a, if a black hole is what a black hole is, they speculate that it is, and it's pulling, it's pulling mass and, and energy in and disappearing through the event horizon, might that be another point of singularity where another universe is now, you know, expanding outward there? So I know that that uh, I know that a great deal of work was done by some of the greatest physicists alive, and many now gone, trying to get us back to that point of singularity, and they never got us. I mean, they were never able to calculate it back. There were things that they were trying desperately to keep put, putting time into the equation and time, you know, which is not a cosmic law, but, you know, so time was screwing it up. You know, we had the time, they get back to a certain point in time in the equation, you know, fouled the equation. And it took them a long time to figure that out. Stephen Hawking was yeah, like, uh, Stephen Hawking. Yeah. Yeah. He worked very hard at that and was very frustrated by it. And, uh, you know, his researchers on his team were, constantly trying to get him to allow them to allow them to remove time from the equation and he just he couldn't understand he couldn't see it he just couldn't see how it could be removed because it is considered to be part of space right space uh, time, right. but it is yeah so anyway that's a whole nother big lecture and read but so they can then you can if you know that the universe is supposed to have an edge on it there's all sorts of mathematical models now that 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 have there's about three principal shapes that they believe it could possibly be and it's really interesting and you can find those in in papers you could also probably just google it and find them um but you can take now a figurative model and you can you can develop a cartesian grid system so let's just say you are taking a circular model of the universe and a, a cute or rather a, a spheric model of the universe you could take a cartesian coordinate system say you know x 1 through 100 y 1 through 100 z 1 through 100 so now you're cutting that sphere up right into all those quadrants which would you know equal eight quadrants by doing that but you would then, if you selected one, uh, you know, one Cartesian, one coordinate, uh, it would give you a, a spot within a quadrant or deep within the center, buried between all of the quadrants. And then yeah, like you could pull that out. Space space time. A cube and then, within and then space time. Cube included in the in, <clears throat> included in that cube would be where correct. Send them for open. Then you could bring that back, and you can bring that back, and then figuratively apply another Cartesian coordinate system to it and further divide that down. And then you could take another cube out of that cube and divide it again. And usually we, it was done three times just for its statistical relevance to do it three times and then to pull that out. And that then became the target cube, the target in that, in that known or suspected universe. Now, why would they do that? Because then they can assign the coordinate to it, not the Cartesian now. Now it becomes two sets of four numbers represented the concept of the target, 
in the mind of the individual assigning those coordinates and why and what, what's the intention there? The intention is an open search outward. Why? Because it's a shotgun blast into that. So 10 viewers are shotgunned into this in a session. And it is suspected that if 10 go, uh, seven will stumble on something. Uh, of those seven that stumble onto something that make a, you know, that hit something other than just blackness during the 90 minutes, uh, that they're now going to look for correlating data. And maybe in the correlating data out of the seven that hit something, uh, five correlate, correlate extraordinarily well to very high level value. So that then becomes a new target for exploration. And mm -hmm. that will go in the historical folder. And next time around, when they want to do it, they will pull that out and they will send, you know, a team of viewers again to see, because what do they want to do? They want to see if the data correlates again. That's what they're doing. And they're just gathered and pulled that kind of information in. But, you know, you've heard, you've heard uh, Mel, Ed, myself, uh, and you've heard Lynn talk about doing that, but then, you know, Paul Smith will say that it was never done. Okay. Well, he probably never did. So, I mean, it's, it, he never I think, did. I think he, That's exactly I the think point. he may have looked at one or two, I think, moon targets, but but not, I don't think he was assigned yeah. to a lot of them. <clears throat> well, he wasn't there much in the three years I was there because he was, he was going to Defense Intelligence College to get a master's degree, you know. Mm -hmm plus taking care of his kids. So he was, you know, he was a busy man in those days. <clears throat> yeah. What else? So when you were doing some of these remote viewing targets, you were, I think there is a story that you tell where you observed some set of entities. <clears throat> and when you're remote viewing, you're supposed to kind of keep a sense of detachment and not kind of interact or at least attempt to interact with elements of the target, but sometimes uh, people can get pulled in. Do you know which uh, instance I'm talking about? Well, I, I know which, what you're alluding to. Yeah. I mean, like it, it wasn't that you weren't supposed to try to interact. It was just the fact that mm -hmm. what you're observing was not in, interested in interacting with you. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, you, was not that you were like keeping distance. I mean, if you could, if you felt like something, you know, you got something as attention. Uh, I mean, it's not, you're like trying to dance, but I mean, remember what you're doing there. You're detecting and decoding and objectifying, and you really have no idea if what you're seeing is if it's real or it's not, because you have no empirical evidence of it. But if you're seeing it and you're experiencing it, you're certainly making some effort especially if you feel like it's aware of your presence, you're trying to engage with it. But most of the time, I, in fact, I don't know of any time, really, if memory serves, I don't know of any time where anybody came back and reported an interaction with, with another entity. I mean, these other life forms were, seemed to be, you know, operating in a completely different, level and cognitive state and you know could we're aware of our presence being there which that wouldn't surprise me i mean you're talking about some of these things that would have had clearly you know been advanced and have interstellar travel capabilities and those kinds of things and so we didn't but if they you know sensed us 
snooping around in there, then it was easy for them to recognize that and, you know, but never interact with us. I mean, like not even so much as, you know, give us a wink or anything, you know, but people were aware that they were aware that we were there and we were, you know, would come back and sketch them and sketch how they were controlling their craft and, you know, sketch what they looked like and other things, you know, some sketch better obviously than others, but that was captured. Yes. Now, how did the world learn about this program? The world learned about the program when I wrote a book called psychic warrior. I hate that title, but Hey, that is when they learned about it and they learned about it uh, because not because I was pissed off at anything or not because of anything else I had, I knew I was going to be leaving the army. I was knew I was going to be leaving the army because I was unhappy with my, you know, I was, I was doing not what, what I was supposed to be doing. It wasn't my purpose anymore and it wasn't my calling anymore. And I started, you know, shopping the idea of the book in 93 because I already made a determination that I was probably going to resign my commission. Uh, and I did so because I, I saw the army differently when I left the unit. Uh, and I went to Torn Image. I saw things that uh, that disturbed me there. When I went to Command and General Staff College, that was fun because it was nothing but academics. I really enjoyed that. When I went to the 82nd Airborne Division, uh, being a battalion XO, I really enjoyed. Uh, battalion Command, I really enjoyed. I went to the division training officer position, and I, you know, I had to work at a level and see, you know, exactly the kinds of things that were starting to turn me off, you know, uh, narcissism and, uh, you know, psychopathy of all, all measure and manifestation. And it was, it wore me to the point. I, I just knew that I was not on purpose anymore. And if you're not on purpose, you have to make the decision to make, you know, get the hell out of there. Right. Or something really serious is going to happen. You can't be a military officer and not feel like you're on purpose and, you know, see the narcissism and the, the failure of command of somebody that, you know, shouldn't be in that, in that category. And for that reason, I left, I was going to leave. And then of course, once the CIA, I'm almost done. Once uh, we only have at the most 30 minutes left because the camera batteries. Uh, are, fifth, yeah, yeah. 15 minutes, 15 minutes. 15. Short, yeah. So, 15. Yeah. <clears throat> so, when, you know, when that shifts in you, which it did, it shifted coming out of the unit. I just didn't know coming out of the unit exactly what had shifted. I told you that, mm -hmm. you know, when I, when I came out of there that I was different, it changed me. I was told it was going to change me. I was told, you know, that my life would never be the same. The problem again, back at the unit is the unit, you have to remember for a guy like me, I had no preconceived notion of you know, of clairvoyance again, back to what I originally said. So that meant that I didn't grow up recognizing this ability. I didn't grow up believing that I had some ability. So I didn't grow up in a comfort zone with it. And so when right. I suddenly, you know, am realizing that that's there, I'm different than, you know, Mel Riley and Gabrielle and the others who, you know, have kind of felt like they had disability at some point all their life. I think Mel realized it at the age of 13. 
I don't know when Lynn did or anybody else, but you know, they were comfortable with it. I was not comfortable with it. And so once I moved from believing to knowing that I have it, there's a, there, you know, things begin to alter and how you see the world, how you see your role in it, uh, how you see people, how you process people, uh, it changed and there was no mechanism. There was no guidebook there. They hadn't even thought about the fact that that might happen. I mean, they hadn't even considered it, that it might happen like that, that somebody, you know, who goes to this program, who is not cut from the same bolt of cloth as these other folks might have a, a challenge now in trying to figure out how you carry this when you go back out into the world and try to function like you did before, because I simply couldn't do that. And not in necessarily in a bad way, but not necessarily in a good way either. I mean, there are certain ways in which you succeed in the military, particularly as a special operations army officer. It, it is, you know, there are very high expectations and it's very competitive. And if you start standing back and looking at things uh, like questioning orders and from a transparency perspective, yeah, you, you're, you start to question people's authority, not that you don't recognize the rank, but you, that you start to recognize the flaws in the individual, you're perceptive. You become hyper-perceptive, hyper-intuitive. You become hyper-discerning. And there might have been a way to curtail that or control it, but there would have had to been some forethought put into that process of saying, okay, here's how it's going to feel to be changed in this way. And mm -hmm. let's help you with some tools and things. But it was outside the scope. And I'm not, I don't blame them. It's just, you know, that's just the way it was. But so now I'm navigating, seeing the world differently with a different set of eyes. I'm looking at the world, you know, standing with one foot in physical world and another foot in a non-physical world. And it, it, you know, that can, that's an awesome thing. And I'm greatly appreciative of that now with the maturity that I have and the wisdom that I have. And, you know, and I don't regret anything that happened in life. I don't even regret what happened and how I left the military. I mean, it was all part of the process of learning and maturing and understanding that there was a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it and somewhere in between. And I'm not sure exactly how, you know, whether, whether mine was entirely wrong or, you know, whether I just know it probably could have been done better. But in writing the book, my, my objective was not, you know, to expose something that, I'd, that you know, people all the time step up and call me a whistleblower. And it's like, God damn it. I am not a whistleblower. Stop saying that. You know, I'm not a whistleblower. Yeah, you're just sharing Whistle a natural human yeah, talent that exactly. everyone has. Because I believe that about. it was something that people should know about. And I wanted to tell it from the perspective of, you know, the CIA and, and DIA and the U.S. military using it. Because that gave it a, a degree of credibility that allowed us to, for me to, you know, look, this was not born in a back room with a beaded curtain by some starry-eyed New Age guru, right? This was, mm -hmm. this was bought and paid for by the U S government. And, uh, and it was utilized for 30 plus years. And I, I have no doubt it's still being used as an intelligence collection methodology. It just went darker and deeper, right? Because it was a valuable tool. It still is. So I wanted to attach that to, and I was willing to, I was willing to take, uh, I was willing to take and pay the consequences for that. I didn't think the consequences yeah, and, and, and might be as least, as they were, but the public, you know, what's public is, is says that the DOD 
funneled $20 million into this thing. But even that, that's probably a very low estimate given that's, all the It's a costs. preposterous estimate. Anybody knows anything right. about government contracting, you know, that, that yeah, it, it was, look, it's if the, what that. happened is when they knew in 93 that the book was going to come out and they couldn't stop it. I mean, they knew that the book was contracted for in 93. They tried from 93 to 94 to stop it and they couldn't stop it. They just couldn't stop it. It was just going to be too contra too hot of a topic. So when they knew they weren't going to be able to stop it, they started their disinformation campaign in 95, you know, yeah, the throwing out all the stuff, releasing it in the newspapers, yeah. you know, debunking it, criticizing, you know, my character and other things. Uh, and okay. I mean, I, like I said, I knew there would be consequences. I was unclear. Maybe it was just my naivete. I didn't think the consequences would end up being as severe as they ended up being, but so be it. The decision was made by me. I'm a big boy, you know, was then I am now. So I, it, you know, I can, I chose to stand in a blast zone. So, you know, I have to take the blast, uh, but it, I was reinstated and, you know, I was given yeah, an you honorable discharge. Took, you, took, you, took a, you took a bullet. I mean, even, yeah, it was the it incident was, in uh, you know I think in Maryland. Yeah, it, the, it, it doesn't. Yeah, we don't have to. Talk uh, about yeah, that. it was. There were look. That was not the agency coming after my family. That was some jackass that was in the program or used to be in the program. You know who knew somebody who knew somebody else. I mean, let's face it. In this country, you can, you can get somebody you know roughed up or killed for a cup of coffee and a donut. So it's not really hard to find somebody to try to shake somebody up or scare them. And that's certainly what happened, but you know, it almost resulted in the death of my family. So it, it's just, it was just stupid. And it, and it was, you know, somebody, like I said, who used to be in the program or what still was in the program. So who, who did that or instigated it? It, it, it was not, nobody put my face up on a briefing board in the agency and said, so we got to get a team to go get this guy. That didn't happen. And, you know, and that is why, you know, the world knows that remote viewing, uh, you know, was an intelligence collection methodology. That's why they know it. You know, and as luck would have it for all the rest of them who are in the unit, every one of them has now written their own book. So good for them. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> right. And, and, and many of Oddly, them not one has ever come to me and said, hey, thanks for doing that. <laughs> yeah well i mean again there's there's a mixture of <clears throat> again i can't speak for any of them but any human natural reaction there'll be a mi mix of envy right because they were too you know yeah. didn't take the risk of doing it themselves <clears throat> you took the risk and you took the bullet for all of them but you also got the first mover advantage which is kind of what so you know everything yeah. kind of balances in its own such as it was if anybody thinks it was done for money, it wasn't because you don't make money selling books like that. Not unless you're Tom Clancy. And uh, it certainly wasn't done for fame because the kind of fame that it brought me was not the, not the kind of fame. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, bought. it wasn't necessarily yeah. a great, great intention, right? <laughs> no. Yeah. But so, yeah. So what's next, what's next for you in terms <clears throat> of, uh, because not, I mean, um, you didn't just do this. You started a medical company that helped train soldiers that's what i've been doing since like 2004 2005 
is I've been a government contractor. Uh, my company trains operational medicine. We were at one time the largest uh, in the world, training roughly 23,000 soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coasties, you know, law, federal, state, law, local law enforcement, and, uh, you know, German KSK, 22SAS, CIA, GRS. Uh, we were training all of them. And, and then, you know, of course, with the war being over, now we have had a longstanding contract with the uh, National Nuclear Secur Security Administration and also with the uh, U.S. State Department. So <clears throat> we train uh, medical providers and we train them in operational medicine, which is actions at the point of wounding on the battlefield. And, you know, basically we're running an EMS. We're running an EMS organization. We run EMT classes and training. And we, have, we have the ability to certify. We have an extraordinarily high rate up in the 90 percentile uh, for graduates of the the EMT course that we run. And uh, I have, I'm surrounded by really good, capable men. You know, my director of training uh, was formerly with SEAL Team 6 as a corpsman. And, uh, you know, my medical director, top of his class in law school. And I have, you know, three other emergency physicians that work for me. And then a whole bunch of other staff that work for me. We run pharmacies and everything else for these government agencies and it's a, it's a lot of fun and that's my life and that's my big focus. But, you know, I, I made a decision. I made a decision after the wars were ended that it was probably a time uh, to get back into the business of teaching again. I really kind of stopped teaching because people, you know, we were in war on two fronts and people were, not any interest of going to remote viewing classes or pretty much any other kind of class, uh, spiritual or otherwise. So it all dropped off. I mean, like the crossings in Austin, Texas, practically closed up its doors. And it was designed and built to be one of these, you know, an or it, it was designed and built to be a university of bringing in spiritual and, you know, self-help and, you know, those kinds of instructors to come in and talk. It was beautiful, spared no expense. It was amazing. Uh, but it's not that now. And Ken and Joyce Beck uh, had to sell it. And, you know, it's the same way. You know, attendance dropped off all over the place. There used to be 3,600 of those kinds of places, you know, in the 90s. And, you know, by the time we got to 2010, it was really dwindling fast. And I think it kind of reached the zenith of die-off. Like by 2018, there were less than 300 of them left. Nation, I mean, globally, 300 of them left. There's still some of the old standbys, but no new ones springing up anywhere. But it just, one of my friends, you know, uh, you know, we have Gary Voris here and, you know, Ted Abrams and others, <clears throat> Linda and Mari and uh, just a host of others of anybody else's name. I forgot to add on to that. We all just, we worked for 18 months on Clubhouse. Every Friday night, I would talk for 16 hours, you know, 12 to 16 hours every night about not just remote viewing, but everything. And, <clears throat> you know, it just became clear that we needed to redo this and of course mm -hmm. start teaching again. And also last year I did uh, the unexplained with William Chatner talking about the Chaco Canyon thing with remote viewing. And, and then mm -hmm. uh, I did three beyond Skinwalker ranch episodes 
one in season one and two in season two and those are those will be airing at some point here and then we've already been told we'll be working in season three again and that's bringing remote viewing teams in to do exploratory work to help them in their research you know so it's uh it's it's been good it's been a good solid resurgence and uh, we just have to keep maintaining the standard of teaching and maintaining the standards of excellence in our uh, in our viewing students and in our viewing graduates, so that we don't uh, ever do uh, something that would you know discredit the phenomenon. Because too many, you know, a price was paid to bring it forward, and I will. I'm kind of intolerant of anybody that tries to bastardize it in some way, you know, and uh, thereby. Uh, Shame it, shall I say? That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, look, there's any any field that you go in, particularly if it's a new field, there's going to be people who claim to be remote viewers, and you know they might be be psychic in some ways, but they're not really doing the remote viewing protocol that is related to the or the. No, you know, shamanism is not a remote viewer. You don't get to call yourself a remote viewer unless you've been trained in remote viewing. It's not a catch-all phrase. It's not a big umbrella phase that you stuff things under. It's a very defined protocol. And so, well, yeah, folks, thanks for pointing that out. You're listening to United <clears throat> Public Radio. I'm here with Dr. David Morehouse. If you had to leave the audience with some final words, David, what would they be? <laughs> No, you got, you know, like you, we, I mean, we can keep going, uh, you know, a few more minutes, but it's, you know. I, you know, I'm not a philosopher and, uh, so it's hard for me to, to, to do that. I just think live your life on, you know, live your life on purpose. Uh, if you don't know what that is, then you need to seek some path that's going to help you define what your purpose is. And the next step is to determine what your calling is that's going to help you manifest that purpose and understand, you know, just the power of intention in your life and govern your life by intention and understand the silos of the observer uh, or the evaluator and understand that if you stand squarely in the evaluator silo uh, of intention in your life, that you're going to live an inauthentic life. Don Miguel Ruiz told me that. And if you're going to live, stand squarely in the observer silo and all that that entains uh, or in, in trains and uh, in living intentionally, you're going to live an authentic life. He also told me that. So we are all evaluators on occasion and we're all observers on occasion. The concept is to, by choice, uh, seek balance. Uh, or if you're going to stand heavy on one foot, make it the observer foot, you know, observe, understand that there's no absolute understand that, you know, there are other versions of everything for yourself. You know, it's, that's the observer silo. So, uh, that's what you're looking for, not seeking absolutes and not making your version of something, the only version that there is, uh, and more. Okay. It'll take me 20 more minutes to tell you all everything about that, but. I think that's probably the best thing I could say to the audience. Very wise words, my friend. As always, a pleasure. It's great to see you, and thank you. For it's great to see you, Sean. Coming on to this radio show. Yeah, Absolutely. of course. Thank you, man. All right, brother. I will talk to you soon. Okay, brother. Yeah, you too. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you.